Lord, it is indeed well with my soul. And look forward to that day when indeed the clouds are rolled back and the Lord. as a, a lowly infant, but this time coming as the king, bringing in the fullness of the kingdom. There's a, a marvelous hope that sustains us and strengthens us to persevere through <clears throat> any and all afflictions that may come our way. If you will turn with me for our text this morning. situations, how believers should respond to the state, how slaves should respond to their masters, how husbands and wives should relate to each other. And uh, Now he is going to address the church as a whole and uh, address us as a, as a people, how we are to, to live together how we are, especially in, in light of a, of a fallen world in which we are only sojourners and foreigners in a world where there is much godlessness and much pain and sorrow, how we are as the church to live together and encourage one another to persevere to the end. So we pick up again, verse 8. We'll read down to verse 12. So Peter again is writing the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, Father, again, we are reminded from your word that as those who have been saved and justified and cleansed of our sins, those who have been united to Christ, united to his body, you have expectations of your people. You have commands, requirements, that you way of that we are to 
reflect that nature in the world. Lord, especially consider some of these instructions that we just read. We are reminded that these are the kinds of things that we ought to be pursuing together to, to create and, and strengthen and cultivate the unity of of God and Christ together. Lord, that especially our various challenges and afflictions and sufferings and trials that the world brings our way. We, we have the body of Christ to encourage us and strengthen us to, to persevere and to remain faithful to Christ until the end. And so Lord, I pray for our time this morning that you would instruct us and speak to us from your word. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Todd Dreher, in his most recent book, he tells the story of Slovakian Christians. What was life like for these Christians who lived under this kind of oppression. And the mere possession of Bible, the mere any Christian literature Christian doctrine either land you in prison or get you killed. They various experiences. One of You hear me here, not just survival in the sense of just barely making it, and, and not survival in the sense of just not being physically. How did they survive being able to persevere in hope and to continue walking faithfully with the Lord? How did they persevere in the work of making disciples? in a world that was saturated with such hostile godliness that, that the, the very pursuit, uh, the, the effort of sharing the gospel, gospel get you How do you continue to do that? And themselves continue to be disciples. What they pointed to had in common is that there was a, a vital importance on the ability to gather together with the small, small, to be able to gather with the 
single one of them is there. Under this vision, that, that's pointing to the. Around churches, strengthened them, not only. In an interview with, with one of these Christians, Dreher spoke to a Baptist pastor named Yuri Sipko. And Sipko, at the of the underground church, he said that there was, there was 60 years of terror. But for those 60 years of terror, they were unable to get rid of the faith. He said it was saved specifically in small groups. Many had no easy access to the Bible. They had no easy access to Christian literature. And so he said believers would often the Bible and then smuggle them from one Christian to the next. Even the very songs that they were singing, they didn't come from hymnals. They came from been written secretly passed from many of us didn't even have Bibles he in a situation where there was one person with others he says was our little niche of freedom were at work, at the field, or on the street, or anywhere else. Everything else, he says, was godless. He then compares the time then to the easy instruction now. And he said, Christianity has become a people's lives, not the main foundation. Now, standing in society, but in these small groups, when people were meeting then, the center was Christ and His Word that was being read and being interpreted as applicable to your own life. What am I supposed to do as a Christian? What am I doing as a Christian? He says, I, my brothers, was checking my own Christianity. It was the church. It was the, the gathering of the people of God in small communities of necessity that was for them a kind of rest, a rest for, for people while they were surrounded by the daily onslaught of hostile godlessness. As you lived your life day by day, you lived under a thick cloud of oppression. Not the people you were speaking to or, or the people that you were doing business with were part of the secret police not knowing if at any moment you could be imprisoned. 
But having the people of God who you shared a common confession with, who you shared a common purpose with, being able to, as it were, leave the world behind and join together with the heavenly assembly and and to hear the Word of God preached and, and taught and to worship Christ together. This, they said, was what changed the Christian's soul. And then we are considering this morning, the Apostle Peter is calling the church to be this very same kind of community in their own day. I think it's worth remembering that at this point, the Christians that Peter is writing at the point are having to hide from a totalitarian state that is seeking to destroy them. That season is coming. It is right over the horizon. It is approaching fast, and it from from the from the point that Peter writes this letter, it won't be many days until Peter himself will be marked the hands of to to squash out and to root out. Most are not facing state-sponsored persecution. They are facing rather cultural ridicule. It is their neighbors in their community slamming them and they are Christians. The wife is merely looking at them as some religious sect of Judaism that can be tolerated and simply ignored. But the culture is rather growing more hostile towards them as each day goes by and is determined to shame them out of it. These particular Christians are presently the kind of suffering having to face the rise each day. More of a, a social ridicule, a cultural uh, uh, persecution, if you will, a, a, a cultural uh, removal, a, a disdain, if you will, for, for Christians. That, that is, by and large, what we are seeing more and more on the rise, especially in uh, the West. And in the midst of Peter essentially as the Slovakian church people calling a united people who are united around a common In the face of increasing godlessness. You can see this beginning in verse 8. Now, this, this passage, you can be, you can 
it into, into three church is together. There's a command about how the church is to relate to hostile outsiders. And then in verses 10 to 12, justification for, for Peter's arguments or, or his instructions here that is rooted in the Old Testament itself. But in verse 8, as I said, Peter instructs the church how say if you look finally all of you wives no longer husbands no longer slaves finally all of you have unity mind sympathy brotherly love a tender heart a humble mind there are five characteristics here virtuous qualities that are led within the church to pursue it's worth pointing out as well that he gives here is not just some random list he didn't just string together a bunch of random qualities that would 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 sound good each quality here or to So if you look with me again, correspond last quality, having a humble mind. The second correspond to the first, having a tender heart, compassion. And then at the center of all of these is the quality of love. Pattern we have of four qualities is technically called center. We find the main idea, and everything around it either explains or supports it. In other words, as we look at this list, the Brotherly love. Philadelphia, right? Where we get the, uh, the, the city. Philadelphia, brotherly love. That, that, that's what we cultivate together. The pursuit of church is not a loosely connected individuals going about their own lives concern for the rest of the body. Neither is it a social club where everyone pays together. It is. It's not simply a, a building where we where we come together and meet. Aspects throughout the church family. It is a family. Christ is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. God is our Father. By His grace, He adopted us into His very own 
family and made us heirs of His kingdom. All in the New Testament, the language of the is used to describe the nature of In fact, it's very often the case. Repeatedly God in the church as brothers. So in John chapter 13, John says there, John verse, count it all joy, my brother. Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. So then, Brother, probably the most common way apostles address people the new. And of course, this calling everybody. Oh, you know, brother, this. It's because. That there is a family link between people of by virtue of their adoption. This is what even Jesus himself taught when he saw his own disciples. Follow him, who believe in him, and who obey him. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 6 to 50 context, his, his family has, has come looking for him. They're, they're asking to, to speak with him while he is in the midst of teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus replies to the man who comes to him and, and informs him that his family is outside and he says, my my brothers. He's stretching out his hands towards his disciples. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. Is my brother and sister and mother. Is first or a family. And as a family, we are called to love one another. Have a brotherly familial love for one another. Now, of course, true love and true Christian culture often makes it out to be. It's not merely the passion that is expressed towards another person because of something that they do for you or Bring to you that kind of love is a selfish self. Right? It is. Uh, it is. It is just caring for other people for what they can give to you, and that is not the kind of love that Peter here is speaking of. True biblical love is selfless love. It is sacrificial. Servant. It is a commitment to 
pursue the good of another and to bless another regardless of how they may make you feel in the moment. You can think of the frustrations that a child may bring to a parent or the sin that one spouse commits against another. That does not alter the fact that the parent continues to love the child and the spouse, the husband and the wife continue to love one another even though those feelings in the moment may ebb and love is fundamentally directed towards serving one another and caring for one another. And so must it be the case for the church. even through and oftentimes despite the sins that we may commit and inevitably will commit against each other. And of course, for this to ability requires an additional quality or where these other virtues that Peter lists come in. The church is to have, Peter says, a unity of mind. It's to have a mindset that is united together. There is to be a common to be centered around the person of Jesus Christ as He has revealed Himself through Scripture. The central question guide everything that the church does is how does this Christ and spread the fame of His name? Answers that the church must themselves be the outworking of its reflection on in addition to the word of right. Sometimes, you know, a church can have a right mindset that will bring glory to Jesus, but then they just sort of come up with things that they hope might bring glory to Jesus. They, they hear about the, you know, the latest uh, church model, uh, you know, the seeker-sensitive model, whatever the, the new fad that's out there is. And, and uh, you know, if we, if we do this, you know, that's going to bring people their desire, desire is a right one to bring glory to Christ, but in our actions of doing that very thing, we must examine all of our practices by the Word of God itself. Right? So we are, we are to be united with the common confession of our desire to worship and glorify Christ. We are to bring all of our actions under the authority of the Word of God itself. But not only must our minds be united around Christ and His work, Peter says also that we must have a humble mindset. Unity and humility go hand in hand. In the minds of the apostles, and thus what should be in, in our own minds, these two cannot actually be separated. 
they are, they are intimately linked together. In fact, the Apostle Paul gives virtually the same in church at Philippi. And likewise, when he gives those instructions, he links together unity of mind with humility. He says in Philippians 2, verse 2-4, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Being in full and of one, there's unity. Then he goes on, do nothing self ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. healthy community of believers is one where we recognize that the church and the gospel is not fundamentally about us. We are not the the end all and be all when it comes to the matters of the gospel and the church of Christ. It is not a platform to perform. It is not to be treated as a kind of cafeteria line where whatever flavor I'm craving at the moment, that's what I'll put on my plate. And its practices and purposes and confession are not to be oriented around our own personal desires. Many a Christian looks at the church as nothing more than an organization that is there to serve them. Go to that church. They're playing that kind of music. I like the vibe of this place. So I'm going to go to that church over there. I like the look and the feel of this place. And so I'll go over there. I like the traditional aspects of this church. So I'll go there. I like the temporary aspects of that one. And so I'll go over there. The whole view of the church is largely oriented around themselves, which is a distortion of what the church is and what it's to be about. Again, the church, as we see here, is a family. Family is primarily designed in order to reflect the glory of God in the Gospel of Christ. And secondly, it is an institution that is created to form us and to shape us into virtuous, Christ-honoring people. In other words, the church and the family is not an institution that is all about us, but rather it is all about Christ and all about others. And having a humble mindset means that you recognize and accept 
that role of giving yourself to the people of God rather than simply taking from and receiving from them. I think the whole culture, the whole church culture at large, especially in the West, particularly in and in the heart of the Bible Belt, evangelical culture would be far more healthy if people had a mindset that the church is fundamentally a place where God is to be exalted and worshipped and where I can serve others in the body of Christ while the body of Christ shapes and forms me into the very person that God wants me to be. It's a, it's a fundamental... They're with several local pastors very often. And, and of course, we, we, we have our, our pastors here. And of course, we've been talking about the differences between church planting and and church revitalization. And of course, in church revitalization, you have a you have a church that has been time for some time. There are a myriad of unhealthy practices and sin that is all church, and it has to be revived. It has to be uh, has to grow into maturity to be led into. Well, if you think about a church like that, it's not a very attractional church, right? It's not as, you know, you want to go into a church just naturally that has all of these problems with it. See how you might contribute in leading it to greater and greater health. Friends, I think that is probably one of the most Christ-exalting, Christ-imitating mindsets that we can have. Christ didn't come to say, bride who was already clean. <laughs> he came to save a filthy and to remake them, to make them new, to, to make them clean and, and spotless. So there is a, a, a great need uh, throughout the South, and throughout America at large for the work of church revitalization, leading churches to greater health. I think we especially need to have that mindset that that's what we want to be about. Other local bodies, especially in our own city, uh, in ways that will lead to their greater and greater health. Now lastly, we can also see how the unity and, and humility they love demonstrated in our actions for one another by these as two qualities that Peter lists here. Sympathy and a tender heart or compassion. He's basically getting at here that when one member is suffering, we all suffer. When one weeps, we are all weeping. When one is rejoicing, we all rejoice together. Burdens that one carries are not to be carried by themselves, but are to be shared by the members of the body. The of all of these qualities ultimately leads to a strong, healthy church that is able to strengthen Christians to endure all the afflictions that come from the world. Now, there are 
added to this, but for the sake of time, we need to move on and look at what verse 9 and following has to say. And, and I want to note briefly what Peter instructs us in and how we are to respond uh, to those who are hostile outsiders. And this is what we see him speaking about in verse 9. Look with me there. He says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And, and no doubt, in unhealthy situations, reviling can be occurring within a local church, but throughout 1 Peter, what we see is that the reviling they are facing comes from outside. And so he's directing these instructions to believers on how they to relate to a hostile outside world. Again, you don't repay evil for evil. Reviling for reviling. He says, on the contrary, bless. This blessing. The assumption, of course, here is that believers are going to face evil. Believers are going to face reviling. The world is not going to look the way they do. We don't act the way they do. When Christians are living lives that are distinctly Christian, that light that they are shining through their lives and through the message they preach can be rather offensive. To the world. And sometimes people can be rather hostile to it in response, and they can plot and they can scheme against you. They can slander your name. Sometimes they will and mock. And of course, in the worst situations, they may kill. But the point here is we are not ever to respond to all of that hostility in kind. If someone insults you, you don't respond thinking up of a better insult and a comeback and shooting it back at them. But even more, I think Peter says, it's not enough to just not respond in kind. It's not enough to just ignore whatever insults come your way. It's not enough to ignore it and, and move on. That is a response of non-action. It's just indifferent or just total disregard. And again, Peter says, that's not enough. There's nothing in the wisdom of the world. That is nothing more than the response of the flesh. It's no different from when people in the world tell you, and perhaps even your, your parents told you, that you, you should not be offended by words because sticks and stones may break your bones. Pertinent. Anybody living in the flesh can respond to reviling and insults by ignoring them. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to go one step further. Peter said that on the we are blessed to do something actively for their good. This is more, of course, than just ignore. This is to seek the welfare of another. It's to lift them up before God in 
prayer that He might do good to them, and then in the face of the evil, we ourselves do good to them. I was reading a soldier that I thought illustrated this point pretty well. This particular soldier was a Christian soldier. And he could often be seen reading his Bible and kneeling at his bed praying to God. The other soldiers would often make fun of him for risking his life following this Jesus who in their minds was nothing more than myth. Well, one night, Make matters even more unbearable. Soldiers boots at the back of the soldier's head. And one would think that that would then lead to a fight breaking out, just holding back and ignoring it. But what happened was that on the next morning. A hostile soldier woke up to find that his boots had been cleaned and polished and were sitting at the end of his bed ready for inspection. The Christian had done him good. And over time, several of these soldiers would eventually become Christians themselves because they saw the witness of a Christian man who knew how to return blessing. Blessing for insults. Friends, we are called unto the world in like manner. What is held out for us as a promise, if we do, is that we also will receive a blessing. God will honor that. We bless even our enemies because we are a people who look to the future. God will right all the wrongs and will grant us an inheritance as a reward for imitating Christ in our obedience to We entrust ourselves to the justice of God and entrust ourselves ultimately to His own promises. Now this then leads lastly to Peter in the witness of Scripture from Psalm 34. We don't have a lot of time to get into this psalm in great detail. Essentially, the psalm is a psalm of David. Of course, at the time, uh, God's anointed king. He is not established on the throne yet. Saul is still king, but God has anointed David to be his king. And it's about David's own experience of being a sojourner or a foreigner who is at this moment outside of the promised land because he's being pursued by persecuted by Saul. He's, he's facing all of these afflictions delivered from his enemies. And he's praising God in the psalm for that deliverance. And while he's praising God, he's teaching the rest of the people of God that in this way God delivered him out of all his afflictions, God will deliver them out of all of theirs. And so for example, David says of himself in Psalm 4 verse 4, 
He says, I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears, or, or actually there in, in the Greek, sojourn. The same word that, that Peter uses to describe. It says, I, I sought the Lord, He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And then this corresponds to what he says of all of God's people in verse 17. He says there, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Or another example, verse 6, this poor man cried and saved him out of all his troubles. And then, drawing on the imagery of Exodus chapter 14, verse 19, the angel of God there moves from the, the front of the camp of Israel to the back of the camp of Israel and, and comes in between the Israelites and the Egyptians who are pursuing them to kill them. Drawing on that imagery, David says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. And so just as God saved the Israelites. And just as He saved David when he was on the run from Saul. And just as He delivered the Son of David, Jesus Christ from the dead, so also will God deliver all His people who from And so throughout this psalm, what David the king experiences by way of deliverance, he says, will also apply to the rest of God's people who themselves are looking to God for salvation and follow in the footsteps of their king. And for Peter, as he quotes this psalm here in this letter, this psalm has direct application to the people of God, to, to us as Christians, because we are a people who ultimately follow the King of Kings. We follow the, the, the one who fulfills the type of David in the person of Christ. And so like David, our King, Jesus Christ, is delivered from the delivered from the him by men, and in the same way we also will be. Verse 11 then says that we in response to this are to turn away from are not to revile those who revile us, but in response we are to do them good because we have the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His face is shining upon us. He blesses His people. And He holds out to us the promise of an inheritance of eternal life. We are to be a people. The church is to be a people who pursue the good of one another and who even together pursue the good of our enemies, those who are against us. And as we do this together, what ultimately strengthens us to persevere 
what we hold on to together are the promises held out to us in Scripture. And it is the, the people of God reminding us of those very same promises. What will form us and mature us and grow together is a healthy church, a small community, as Bakians would say, a small group of believers with whom together worship Christ. We can exhort and encourage one another. We can read the Bible together. It, it is a church that commits itself to headship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so let's go to the Lord. As we this morning, I, I want to ask Him specifically would conform us and conform our own hearts, our own desires to pursue may grow and bring glory to the Lord. Well, Father, in Your grace, You have indeed called us out of darkness and into Your light and called us and adopted us into Your Who we gather with, we worship with, in community, in the church, this is the body that you have given to us that, that we may fulfill these very commands together. The body we are to pursue brotherly, the very body that you have placed us in to show compassion and tender hearts and counting others as more significant than our. Selves. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us all a mind and heart that was in Christ Jesus. That as we look at the bride, do not look at the bride simply for what we gain from her, but and in love for Jesus Christ. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name.